Don't shoot the deputies. Hello and welcome to Don't Shoot the Deputies, a podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. Welcome to all our listeners and hello to my co-host Steve. Hello Russell and great to talk to you as always. Now, we hope you all enjoyed our recent episode looking at mathematical reasoning with Gareth Metcalf. If you haven't heard that one, it's definitely well worth a listen. But today we're thinking about phonics, something every teacher needs to have a good understanding of. Don't you think, Russell? Absolutely, Steve. And as teachers who have spent most of our careers in Key Stage 2, it's something we both know we've still got lots to learn about. So who better to help us than John Walker? Now, John is the director and co-author of Sounds Right. He's been a qualified teacher, university lecturer and teacher trainer for over 30 years. He's also a very keen blogger, and we really recommend that you have a look at his blogs after listening as they are great. A huge welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you very much. Thank you, Russell. And thank you, Steve. It's great to be here. And once again, well, I'd like to thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure, John, and welcome to the podcast. Could you start by describing what we mean by phonics? And could you tell us about the evidence for why it is so important? To be honest with you, I'd like to flip that question on its head in talking about phonics, because actually, if you listen to people like uh, Dawkins and evolutionary scientists, they'll tell you that we've been speaking for well over 100,000 years. We're not quite sure how long, but somewhere around there. Wherever you go in the world, it doesn't matter which community it is. Every community learns to speak and listen unless a person has something radically wrong with them. Everybody learns to speak and listen in in every community in the world. Many of those communities, of course, don't necessarily have uh, reading and writing. They haven't invented reading and writing. And the thing I want to make clear really is that all writing systems are inventions that started with the Sumerians, about 3,200 BC. And it was a brilliant idea. And of course, it didn't come out of nothing. It was rooted in a material history, if you like, because prior to that, people were hunter-gatherers and people lived in villages. There was a long process of villagization, uh, an Oxford Don once called it, before the advent of the first cities. And the first city, of course, was Uh, was founded in the Middle East, in the Fertile Plain, between the Euphrates and the Tigris, and it grew up. And of course, writing was a functional tool. No uh, civilization, I say civilization because that comes from kiwis in Latin, which means city. So no civilization can function without a writing system, a writing system which can take account of what's being sold and what's being bought, a legislative system, religion, and so on and and so forth, all the sorts of things that you'd associate with city life. And of course, this idea caught on very rapidly, and it was transferred to the Phoenicians, who were great sailors and travellers across the the Mediterranean. They took it to the Greeks, the Greeks took it to the Etruscans, to the Romans, and it finally ended up here. Now, the whole point about this is that all writing systems represent the sounds in speech. Some people uh, may quibble over that, but actually two people who wrote a book called The World's Writing Systems, Daniels and Bright, and uh, a chap called uh, Cool Mass, a number of people actually have written about this, and they are adamant that all writing systems are invented to represent the sounds in speech. And in our particular language, and in all European alphabetical languages, 
each sound is represented by a squiggle. No matter how complex the language has become, how many words have been, I suppose, borrowed into the language, it's still true that every word is comprised of sounds. And at some point in time or other, those sounds have been assigned spellings. And basically, we can teach all of those spellings. It takes probably between three years and maybe four years for some children, but we can teach all of this. And all of these spellings are based on the 44 sounds in our language. And of course, actually, when you think about it, uh, really, if uh, letters are symbols of sounds that represent the sounds in speech, and there are far, far fewer sounds than there are words in the language by several orders of magnitude. That's such a fascinating uh, overview, John. I need you to keep going now. So why is it important? How do we know it's important? So there's no doubt whatsoever that that writing is an invented thing and phonics is an invented thing in terms of its existence in so many different kind of languages. But what's the evidence for us teaching it discreetly to young people? One of the things that we've certainly learned from Sweller, Kishner and Clark in the last, say, 20 or more years now is uh, we've learned a lot about the way that people learn. And uh, one of the things that they lent on quite heavily was David Geary's idea that you could categorize knowledge. And uh, he came up with two categories of knowledge. There's biologically primary knowledge. That's knowledge that we acquire without even thinking about it. In fact, what he says, Geary, is that you can't teach biologically primary knowledge. It's the sort of thing that you're primed for, or you've been primed for through our evolutionary history. So would talk be one of those? Yes, of course, talking and listening, because actually, although if you're not exposed to talk, there, uh, there are critical points in, in time that you, if you're not exposed to it, you probably will never learn to talk very well. Right. You know, uh, maybe you can make a stab at it, but really, uh, there are critical periods there. But of course, it's it's natural. Uh, I th- what did Pinker say? Pinker said that it's as natural as, as is spinning a web for a spider. Yeah. I think Stephen Pinker. Mm. But um, anyway, yes. Yeah, so there's biologically naturally acquired knowledge. I, I sit in the kitchen sometimes and as I'm as I'm writing and things out of the corner of my eye, a bird might land in the garden and immediately I'm looking at it because it might be something that's going to eat me or it might be something that I could eat. So we're well primed for that in, in our long evolutionary history. The opposite is true, and uh, this is probably one of the main problems that we've suffered from in education uh, with in in regard to uh, biologically secondary learning, because secondary learning is to do with all the things that have been invented, mathematics, musical notation, and of course, writing systems. And we need to be taught writing systems explicitly and systematically. In fact, the book I was referring to before, The World's Writing System, is written by uh, Peter Daniel and Bright. Daniel says that no child, no child, learns their own script by themselves. All children need some kind of prompts, some kind of systematic teaching. And of course, you do meet people who say, I never learned phonics, I just learned to read. But actually, I don't know anybody who uh, can remember very much about what was taught to them before the age of seven, 
even our own youngest daughter, who was taught phonics in those years, has can't remember a darn thing about it. All she knows is that she can read, you know. Mm. So the, there's the distinction between the two. And of course, one of the things that one of the assumptions that was made by many educators for a very, very long time is that it's as easy to acquire knowledge about biology and all these other things as it is to learn to speak and listen and do all the other things which we manage to do naturally. Mm. And of course it isn't. No. Uh, you need good quality, explicit teaching from the start. Uh, and you need lots and lots and lots and lots of practice as well. Brilliant. And we'll come back to that point a bit in a, in a mm. moment. Um, one thing I've noticed, John, and I don't know if this is as a result of the year one phonics check, but phonics is often been seen in schools I've worked in primarily about teaching children to read. But what you're talking about there is, is a real emphasis on writing. What are your views about that then? Should it apply just as much to children's writing as it does for reading? Uh, definitely. In fact, reading and writing are two sides of the same coin, which again, I think is something that's really poorly understood. So when we're teaching children to read, we teach it through word building. So we don't teach letters in isolation for a start. That is something that uh, we've com completely, we well, we never got started with that in the first place. Um, and the reason for that is that uh, although it is possible to learn letters in isolation and to, and to connect them with sounds, there are some children who think, well, okay, this is, mm, well, who cares? What does mm mean to me? Nothing. Whereas it does mean something if it's part of a word such as mat that they can sit on and that they know and they understand. So really, as, as far as we're concerned, then we teach children word building, they learn to segment, they learn to blend. So they learn to segment the sound. These are the sounds we need to build the word mat. What's the first sound you hear in mat? And they have to tell you that the first sound is mm. And of course we can carry on stretching out those sounds as long as we like. Once they've built the word, they write it. And everybody, as they write it, they say the sounds as well. And we give them masses and masses and masses of practice in doing this. And if you don't do this, then actually what's in working memory now at this very moment when you're writing it soon disappears unless we keep going back to it and back to it and get it into long-term memory. And we think that as far as well, teaching even in the very first two weeks that children come into school, we think that we provide enough practice to teach children five sound spelling correspondences in the context of several words, and that all children, unless they're non-neurotypical, can learn to read those words and to write those words as well. So reading and writing go hand in hand. However, there is a slight uh, mismatch between the two. Reading is recognition memory. You have it in front of you. So if somebody's called, you're Steve. Are you, were you Chris and Stephen? Stephen, yeah. Stephen. So, so I don't know whether that was a V or a PH, but if I see it in front of me, of course, I'd know straight away. If I then had to write to you later, I might be thinking now, which one was it? Was it a PH or was it a V? So, Actually, retrieval memory is really a deeper kind of memory. 
And so we place a lot of emphasis on writing. We teach children to write from the start. We also teach children to write in sentences as soon as we have enough sound spelling correspondences to be able to work with. So a man sat on a mat would be something that children would be required to write in probably week three, week four of doing phonics. And at the same time, we're teaching them punctuation. We're teaching them about capital letters. And of course, they absorb this like sponges as long as it's all made absolutely clear what's happening and that we're teaching from the sounds, each sound to each spelling, and they're getting the kind of practice that they need. And it's explicit enough as well. Yeah, that's great, John. I'm curious now to hear what your opinions are about the age we should start phonics teaching. Is there a right age? And if so, why would there be a right age? Now, in in any population, you're going to have um, you're going to have children with different abilities. Although even then, I have to hesitate with that because actually there are a number of different skills involved in learning to read. First of all, how easy is it? I'm sure for some children, it's easier to get information, sound spelling correspondences into long term memory than it is for other children. But on the other hand, some children have better skills than others. So their procedural skills of blending, segmenting, manipulating phonemes in words is better. Some children have a better ear for the sounds uh, in, in speech and can reproduce those sounds accurately uh, from the start. And in fact, actually, our own youngest daughter uh, she was absolutely fantastic at blending and segmenting sounds. You know, I'd say to her when I collected her from nursery sometimes, this afternoon we're going to T-S-K-O-Z. Uh, what's that? Are we going to Tesco's, Dad? Can't let's get on with it, for God's sake. And uh, and the nursery nurses go, good God, how did she do that? Well, it was just from practicing from the age of two and a half. We practiced. But you know what? She found it a bit harder, actually, to match the sounds to the spellings and remember them. For that, we had to give her a little bit more practice. So swings and roundabouts, really. Mm. And that's why I think that every single child who comes into a YR classroom, and I'll answer the rest of your question in a second, I think we can provide them with a level playing field. Some kids come in thinking that they can read already because they can memorize a simple text Mm. and you know, and and so-called read it back to you. They're not really reading, they're memorizing. Other children know letter names. Other children can say sounds, but very imprecisely. Well, word building sorts all of that out from the start. We don't need letter names. We say sounds precisely. And we learn that words are comprised of sounds and that the alphabet orthographic script goes from left to right across the page in simple CVC words, right from the beginning. So my answer to the question, is there a right age? No, probably not, that some children actually are really gasping to want to learn to read at the age of three, three and a half, something like that. Other children, for other children, it's nearer four. And and I will say as well, you do get the occasional child, and I've taught one in reception, who probably had a mental age of two years and nine months, something like that. And frankly, that child was definitely not ready to read. All the child wanted to do was she wanted to watch what was going on. She'd go off and play in the sandpit whenever she got bored and she was fed up with it. 
But we did teach her in year one. She was ready. And actually, all of the stuff that she'd been watching was worthwhile, really. It was all in there. It was a question then of bringing it out. So it depends. But the important thing is, really, that children can do much more in cooperation with a more experienced peer or a teacher than they can do on their own. So to me, that's the key. And that's also why we teach whole class and we insist on teaching whole class. Mm. Yes, which is different to lots of other approaches out there. Uh, one, one, one thing that I wanted to, or I wasn't planning on asking you about, but since you sort of touched on it there, you were talking about at one stage there about the fact that we talk about the sound. And I think this is a subtle difference with your approach to teaching phonics, that it's a nuanced difference, but it has quite profound implications, which is that we begin with the sound and then and then the kind of the letter, the grapheme, sorry, are a way of presenting a sound rather than the other way around, rather than having a grapheme and saying this grapheme makes this sound. Why is that subtle difference important, do you think? It's incredibly important, actually, because what you're tapping is children's natural ability. And do you mind if I give you a practical example? Uh, it's, uh, I don't know whether you can see this very well. Can you, can you see it if I put my board up like this? Yes, our listeners won't see it, but I can, uh, I can help them to imagine, John, okay. what you're right. putting on the board here. So I'm, I'm drawing three lines on the board. Yeah. So we, three lines are very useful for giving children a place to listen and also a place it captures their attention. And gestural language we use all the time because gestural language is very powerful. And we know from, what's his name now? Uh, Thomas Sello, who is a researcher in this area, who reckons that actually gestural language preceded speech. And therefore, gestural language is very powerful. You find it also in Hattie's work too. He talks about uh, the power of gestural language at one point. So when we're word building, we might put up... Uh, three sound spelling correspondences and we say for short these are the sounds we need to build the word mat and again we're using our gestures all the time mat mat and we're giving those four-year-olds plenty of time to listen plenty of time to locate what it is we're asking for mm -hmm. what's the first sound or what sound can you hear when my fingers under this line because not all children know what first second third is that as as, math, as guys who are interested in maths would know that. <laughs> so what's the first sound you hear when my finger's under this line when I say mm, mat? I hear mm. mm. Yeah, you hear mm. Every blood, everybody hears mm. <laughs> I've, never met, I've never been in a reception class where kids don't hear mm and can tell you. They go, it's mm. <laughs> okay, right, it's mm. Okay, so who would like to show me which of these is mm? Tell me. In every reception class, would I find a child who could tell me that? Yes. Of course, absolutely. Because children have been to nursery, children have been taught by parents and what have you. So we have somebody comes up and they take the post-it off, put it down here, and they say, mm, and everybody says, mm, again, say, mm, for me. Mm. Mm, lovely, you said that sound really well. Well done, Russell. Yes. <laughs> and this is what we say to the kids. <laughs> We repeat this, of course, mat, mat. What sound can you hear now? We're not segmenting for them, by the way. We're not saying mat. Come on, Steve, I'm not doing this all by myself. <laughs> <laughs> We're saying mat, and, and somebody will say ah, and we'll do the same thing. And of course, we'll build the word mat. And now we'll say the sounds. 
as a uh, Elspeth, say this. Uh, well, we'll do it as a class first. Everybody, mm at Matt. Now we'll take Elspeth, mm at Matt. Now Russell, mm at Matt. Now uh, Steve, mm at Matt, and so on. We'll we'll go around five or six children, and the last child will be the child that may not have had any experience of this before. Yeah. We've already we've already clocked this child, so we're going to say. So tell me the sounds that you can hear. Mm at Matt. And if the child can't do it, we won't step around them. We ask somebody else, show so-and-so how to say the sounds. Mm at Matt. Very good. Now your turn. Yeah. And so on. Then I won't take you all the way through the lesson. It takes too much time, but we will <laughs> write the word. Everybody says the sounds as they write the word. And we'll read it back again several times. In the afternoon, we might say, do you remember that word that we built this morning? Yes. Who thinks that they can read it? And I've got it on my whiteboard. Who can say the sounds and read the word? Matt, Matt, good. Everybody together. And then several more uh, people will do the same. Several more children will do the same thing. Yeah, I, I can completely see how it's all about the sounds. And actually, you've bought in the graphemes as we've gone. So it's just become... Uh, easy for them to sort of associate the, the the graphing with that sound, but the starting point's been the sound. And some of the things you talked about there, I think almost that overlearning, the repetition, definitely seems to have been influenced by what I know is your real interest in cognitive science. I've seen it in your blogs. So tell me a bit more about how cognitive science has impacted the design of your program and also any other features that you think are key to effective phonics teaching. Well, I mean, you've already spotted there's some spaced learning as soon as we've done word reading, so the next day I might write the word Matt again and say, does anybody think that it can say the sounds and read the word Matt? Matt, very good, well done, and now we'll write it. Say the sounds as you write them. So now we've built in some word reading and they know how it works. They know that we read the word, we say the sounds and read the word, and we write the word, say the sounds and read it back to check as well. And we've got various checks going on uh, at a number of junctures to make sure that what you hear is what you see. And what you see is what you hear. So if you go mm, app, Matt, then there's a problem there. And that's the point at which the teacher can offer corrective feedback before things become fossilized, really. So Letters, uh, and, and then of course, as soon as we've got enough of these lessons, we can interleave them so that we're not doing mass practice. We'll start off by doing a little sound swap and then we'll go on to do a bit of word reading. And then we might do some word building and then we might end up with some reading in text or a dictation, depending on how far on we are. So all of these things, of course, are affected by this. But the other thing, of course, is that letters do not make sounds. They don't say sounds. We say sounds. They represent them. So it's keeping it straight all the time. And the problem with young children is they're magical thinkers very often. And if you say that this makes this sound, A can be A, it can be A, it can be OR, it can be ah, uh, it can be a whole number of things. And some kids go, well, if that's the case, I'm going to give up because I can't learn this. <laughs> so it, it's important to teach it in a structured way, step by step, so they understand exactly how the code works in relation to the sounds of the language. So following up on this, John, as a predominantly key stage two teacher, 
I'd feel that there'll be many key stage two teachers who have been left feeling a bit unsure of how to teach spelling effectively. Should phonics continue into key stage two? And does this have any implications for the way we commonly approach spelling higher up the school? Absolutely, definitely. I mean, if you ask people to spell a word that they've possibly never seen before, then you'll see what they do. Obviously, they can't go from memory, so they have to break the word into its syllables, and then they have to break the syllables into the sounds, and then they have to represent the sounds. And they may or may not represent the sounds accurately with the right spellings. So that's one point at which we can intervene at any time. However, really, if a student isn't doing well in key stage two, we really need to analyse what kind of support and help they need. So, for instance, they may still be unable to segment and blend adjacent consonants in single syllable words, words like crab and frost and so on. If they can't say frost and they're saying fost or frot or something like that, we need to sort that out and they need uh, some, some kind of uh, special support and help, usually in a small group sometimes one-to-one if the, if the problem is profound. Many children by the time, or many students, by the time they get into uh, key stage two, have got over some of these problems, although by no means all. You, you, I see this very commonly, that, uh, that some students are stuck in the initial code. If you can't segment and blend four sound words containing adjacent consonants, you don't get out of the blocks at all. And it's incredibly frustrating. And it makes some kids very, very angry. They seem to respond in two ways. They get very angry and think they're stupid, or they tend to sort of play the invisible man or something. So it, it, it can be very difficult. But what I am saying is that actually phonics is a fantastic tool for helping children to read and spell Uh, as they're going through key stage two, especially when words are becoming longer, they're becoming more complex, they're becoming more domain specific. And because they're becoming more domain specific, it's highly likely that they contain sound spelling correspondences that we borrowed from Latin or Greek. And that means that teachers need to be very well trained and they need to be highly knowledgeable. So, um, I mentioned the word chlorophyll uh, earlier on, and uh, if you were working on the word chlorophyll, then you break it down into its uh, into its syllables, chlorophyll, and then you'd look at each particular spelling, and you'd ask uh, your students which particular spelling in this might cause you a problem. Now, it might be just one. In fact, we do this right from the start in Sansrite. What we do is... Um, We'll say if a child says to us, um, "Miss, how do you spell how do you spell stream?" Would we give it to them? Absolutely not. No, we wouldn't. We'd say, "What's the difficult bit for you?" And normally, we'd know if we have knowledge of the child. We teach the child all the time. We know that they know s and t and r and m, and they can blend and segment uh, adjacent consonants. We know that the problem is the e. So we're expecting the child to say to us, it's the E, how do you spell the E? Well, by that time, we've probably taught letter names and we say it's the E-A spelling. But if it was before that, we'd just write it and say, this is the way we spell E in this word. What do you need to do? All right, okay. And that's a very powerful tool in itself, actually. And uh, I've taught many kids, for instance, who are doing uh, what the Egyptians and 
and they're doing archaeology. How do you spell archaeology? What's the difficult bit for you? It's the k or it's the e, archaeology, you know, piece of cake. And you can talk about it. This is the kind of k we get from Greek words. You know, you see chemist all the time and Christmas, Christ, chaos, all of these words spelt where k is spelt with a ch come from Greek. And if you keep saying this to kids all the time, is it one of those that come from Greek? Uh, and so on, and, and, it, and it stimulates their interest. So actually in Key Stage 2, you really need to extend your phonics work into etymology and into morphology as well, and into really making sure that they understand how polysyllabic words can be segmented and what the problems are, especially with schwas, for instance and how to deal with schwas and, and elisions too. Really interesting hearing what you're saying there, because as a key stage two, predominantly key stage two teacher in my career, I can just think about so many dreadful habits we've all fallen into when teaching spelling. And it's come probably from that lack of subject knowledge and really having faith that children do have enough prerequisite knowledge that they can apply into these new words that they're coming across. And I think, as you say, there's something really powerful in saying or pointing out to children that they do have what they need from prior teaching. It's a bit like how you'd sometimes do handwriting practice in the past and then you'd be surprised when they didn't use it in their work. And it's almost like you had to explicitly point out to them, you can do that in your normal English, but not just in your handwriting book. And I think a lot of what you're talking about there with the phonics is is, is getting children to utilise what's there already if they've had good phonics teaching in, 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 in these more complex words or seemingly more complex words, which sort of leads me on. You talked about it a bit there, John, in, in Key Stage 2, in a school like mine, we've, we've actually opted for sounds, right? But whatever phonics program a school might have bought into, if they've done that relatively recently, they'll be seeing the, the kind of rewards of that lower down the school quite quickly. We are certainly very quickly. But we've got these children further up the school and we'll get onto specific children with perhaps learning specific needs in a minute. But what about the general population of the class who might have these gaps? You know, I can think of our year five, six cohorts where they've got loads going for them with their writing. But because they've had inconsistent phonics approaches, there's all sorts of strange gaps. What do we do in that situation? Because that might be two or three years for a school like mine that we've got to kind of deal with before the filter through. Yeah, no, I understand the question, really. And that is why we think it's so incredibly important to put in really solid foundations in that first year of school. In that first year of school, children ought to be able to segment and blend like demons, anything, really. By the time they get into year one and they're dealing with polysyllabic words, that, that foundation is going to really come through. So they're able to segment the syllables in polysyllabic words. By the time they get into key stage two, it should be second nature. And actually, that's what we want it to be. Because if you have to stop and think all the time, then it actually takes you away from the work that you're doing, perhaps the sentence that you're trying to compose, the subject that you're trying to think about as you write, or even as you read. All the time you come up against the fact that, you know, you're hitting these buffers. So for me, it's not a very popular thing to say because I honestly think that people can't be bothered. But the most important thing you need to do in primary school is to teach children to read and write and teach them to read and write really, really well so that they can access a secondary curriculum. I feel really strongly about that. I, th I think the same is true about basic arithmetic as, as well. Both of them are just uh, incredibly important. And 
people who turn around to me and say, oh, this kid can't read very well, but, you know, I don't want the kid taken out of the lessons because, you know, they, they won't get the knowledge that we're imparting. Well, actually, the kid won't get the knowledge that they're imparting because if it's not going into long-term memory, if they can't make notes, if they can't read something about what's being taught, imparted orally, then actually it's all going to evaporate. It's going to disappear probably in quite a short period of time. So I think it's incredibly important that we teach children to read and write. Now, how do you fill those gaps? Well, it depends what the gaps are. I mean, you can. T uh, I usually give people who've trained already, we have a Facebook page for, for people who can ask questions like this. And one of the things I say to people about, for instance, coming back after the pandemic, why don't you give them a spelling test to start with. It can start with CVCC words, words like nest and wind and film, and slowly build up and see where the gaps are, see where children, students as it is in key stage two, see where they're starting to fall apart, see what's been uh, missed, uh, you know, through the, while the pandemic's taken place and they've missed all that schooling, and then go on to some of the complexities of the code and test those as you go along. You can see pretty much straight away. So what I say to you, Russell, is that you know something about sounds right already. You know how we teach more than one way of spelling a sound. Actually, I would start from the beginning with something like A, take that through all the spellings of A, with the exception of, say, EI, because they'll know the AI in rain, they'll know the AY in stay or pay, they'll know the EA in great or break, they'll know the split spelling. Will they know the E-I-G-H? Of course they will, because they've been doing math for ages. It may be a revelation to them that you can spell a sound with four letters, but, you know, it, it's easy to deal with as you go along. And then what are the other ones? They'll probably know A. We're coming, we're, we're coming into April. That's a good time to teach A anyway. Or Apron or David, if you've got a David in the class. And what's the one I'm not thinking of now? I'd, I'd leave the E-I in vain until it comes up. But basically, I'd be teaching six or seven different spellings of, of A, which students in Key Stage 2 would be able to handle quite easily. But they need time. Uh, they need two weeks, at least, of practice if it's going to go in. And then I wouldn't expect them to be spelling those words uh, because they still wouldn't know which particular spelling of A you'd use in any particular word until they've had lots of practice, and then lots of exposure in reading and writing. And uh, unless you give them that, ain't going to happen. Mm, very interesting, John. And I was wondering if we could take this a little bit further, actually, because the final area we wanted to focus on was those children who may find learning to read and write particularly difficult. And we wondered if you would be able to share a couple of reflections on two points, really. The first one being, how do we best support children with speech and language difficulties within phonics and the second one being that there are some unique challenges of teaching children to read and write in the current day and age because of the nature of the children's relationship with technology could you give us your thoughts on those two please just taking the last one first it's been very interesting actually what people what sounds right teachers have told us about uh, the lockdown and about conducting lessons in the lockdown, because what we've been asking them is, how did it go? And what they're saying is, as long as you've taught the lessons beforehand and the kids know what the lesson templates look like, then all you've got to put in is the information. And what we've been encouraging people to do in the main is not to push on. 
to make sure that the stuff that you've taught already is consolidated. That I think was the most important thing, because if you push on, then there are going to be lots of kids who won't have been online anyway, who will miss all of this. And then you've got all these gaps in the class. Some children are over here and some children over here. So as far as that's concerned, uh, uh, the, I think the problem with um, spending too, are you referring to spending too much time on computers and things like that? Like my grandchildren? Yeah. Right. Okay. Precisely that. Yeah. I've got, I've got one at home who does exactly that. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is God knows. <laughs> I mean, well, <laughs> I mean, the thing is that both of uh, my grandchildren uh, can read really, really well. They're incredibly good readers. In fact, one of them helped me with uh, bringing together the course for parents that we've made free online, help your child to read and write. Uh, so he's in that and uh, saying sounds very accurately. Terrific reader, he and his, and his sister. But um, actually, they just want to spend so much time online. And the pandemic has really made that a lot worse because how can you keep on top of kids all the time when they can't go out and things like that? And you've got a job to do. It's very, very hard indeed. The other thing, of course, is that if you can't read and write, you can't access anything that's worthwhile. A lot of people think that gaming is is a worthwhile thing to do, and I'm sure it is. But in terms of accessing information, that's going to be uh, very difficult for them. So let's just answer the question about speech and language. It's very hard. Um, children who have some learning difficulties, they find learning very tough. Well, I'll give you a nice example, actually. Uh, Italian is very, very easy to learn. It's not quite one letter, one sound, not quite, but it's not far off. It's pretty, pretty damn easy. And yet they teach children with Down syndrome to read. And these kids could read uh, words like sbagliato, which is a mistake to make a sbagliato. So you've got a sbagliato and they can read and write words like that. There's just one trouble. They can't understand what they're reading because they haven't got the intellectual ability to be able to do that. On the other hand, of course, you've got children who have got speech and language difficulties. And for me, the real problem is here. If you can't hear, then I would say that you can only make so much progress. I think it's very, very hard to make progress if uh, you have no hearing at all. On the other hand, if you if you can't say sounds accurately, it doesn't matter so much as long as you can show the student can hear them. So I often like to give the example of Roy Jenkins. Roy Jenkins was chancellor of Oxford University, but he couldn't say his name properly. He was Roy. He couldn't say Roy, he's Roy. And of course he could hear er when people said it, he just couldn't articulate it. And actually there are children that you come across that just can't or find very hard uh, it find it very hard to articulate sounds. But there are children who have speech and language difficulties whereby they can't formulate a sentence syntactically correctly. And they are very, very hard to teach. And to tell you the truth, it's hard to know what the problem is because you can't lift the lid and have a look. And even if you could lift the lid and have a look, you'd never find out how all the connections are made and whether some of them are disconnected, misconnected in some way and what reason, what the reason for that is. I'm actually looking at some research at the moment uh, to do with that. And very often, of course, it does run in families. And 
although it'll miss some people out in the family, others get it down the line. Others have this problem. It's a, it's a tough one. It is a tough one. And I, but, but what I would say is, you know, we did a lovely podcast on, on inclusive practice with uh, Gareth Moorwood lately. And we were talking about how so many of the strategies that are useful for children with additional needs benefit everybody. And you've talked today about your programme being particularly informed by cognitive science and sort of overlearning and, and, and referring back. These are strategies that will benefit all children. And, and, and I think very much so those with additional needs too. So I think that, that that's one point there, isn't it? In terms of the delivery that you believe in is it, it should benefit all children that, that kind of slow going back over things, very repetitive, inclusive, everyone learning at a similar pace. Yeah, 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 I think so. And and I think you could augment that by doing several things as well. So, for instance, when I go to St. George's Church of England School in Battersea, what I see is a reception teacher, and this is the time to catch those children who might be having problems right from the start. We have a class of children sitting there taking part in the phonics lesson with a TA who is trained, by the way, and may have on either side of her two or maybe three children who find learning more difficult or who have no prior learning before coming into school. And so these children take part in the whole lesson with the extra support of the TA there. And the teacher, of course, as well, is looking all the time to see whether these children can take part. Can you tell me what the first sound in sit is? You can. Great. Come up. And so there's a great sense in the class of everybody is working together. Everybody can contribute. Mm. Now, if a child's got particularly special needs, then that child then ought to have tier two intervention outside the class, small group, or even one-to-one. But I honestly believe that with the exception of a tiny, tiny percentage of children, everybody can learn to read and write. Yeah. And I think you have to believe that if you're if you're working in a school, you have to have faith in that. And I think you know, as a key stage two teacher who's now seeing this program having great benefits for our younger children, you know, I can think of children in Key Stage 2 that I know would have benefited from this level of rigour and overlearning lower down who are perhaps now on an SEN register, but actually it's just a, it was an unmet need earlier on. So I think that's a great point to sort of end on that early intervention when it comes to reading and writing is it's key, isn't it? Uh, it's nothing better. And, and high expectations, mm. really high expectations, which I feel are nearly all, that's led by the head teacher. Mm. The head teacher is the person who sets the standards, who raises the bar. And I've seen some really great head teachers uh, in my, you said 30 years, sorry, 50, really. All oh, right, I apologise. Yeah, yeah, sorry, 50. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. And and I agree. And I it, it sort of, it was interesting for us in my school because it sort of followed our journey with Mass Mastery, actually. And you can see how many of the same principles translate. You know, we moved away from ability grouping, arbitrary ability grouping, and, 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 and very much believing that with the right scaffold and support, every child can do it. And I think you're saying the same point there. So what a great place to end. John, I think I could talk to you for hours about language and literacy and all sorts and uh, you know, great admiration for your expertise. So thank you for giving up some of your time to talk to us today. I do recommend our listeners visit theliteracyblog.com, which is John's uh, blog. Lots of insights there that I just find really, really interesting. If you're a, an English lead, phonics lead, or just a 
teacher. Go and have a look. There's some great stuff there. And as always, everybody would be very grateful if you could leave us a a positive review or rating for the podcast and tell your friends and colleagues uh, about it too. Cheers, John. Great to talk to you. Can I make a, can I advertise one thing, please? Please. We've got a symposium coming up in May, at the end of May. We've already got 1,500 people signed up to it. It's a symposium on one-to-one and small group interventions uh, for children who need it. We've got a huge range of speakers. I'm not going to say who yet. (laughs) We're going to tease that. And that's on our Sounds Right Facebook page. And uh, I'll tweet that out and I might put it on the blog as well, actually, to alert people to it. And by the way, it's going to be free, entirely free. Fantastic. That sounds good. And and since you were mentioning three things you've done, your your video you made you referred to earlier for parents is really, really very good. So that's well worth a look at as well. Great, John. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to come on to the podcast. Thanks. Absolute pleasure. Don't shoot the deputy.